This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. He is the most feared political activist in America, Chris Rufo. He's on a hot streak, and he joins us right now. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Christopher Rufo is a senior fellow and director of the Initiative on Critical Race Theory at the Manhattan Institute. He's also a contributing editor of City Journal, where his writing explores a range of issues, including critical race theory, of course, gender, ideology, homelessness, addiction, crime, and all of the other horrible things happening in the United States of America. Lots of other great stuff. We're going to get into it right now. Chris, how are you doing? Doing very well. How are you? All right. Well, uh, I'm good. You know, it's uh, this has been a weird year and uh, still still a little bit of time left to go. You've been very busy. So I want to run through all these things that you're up to and uh, help people understand how they all fit together. Uh, let's see. You got a, a fellowship at uh, the Manhattan Institute. You got um, a, a book, America's Cultural Revolution. You're on the board of the new college in Florida. Um, and then you, you're also making documentaries and doing some other stuff in your spare time. Uh, what's the logic for doing all of these things at once? Well, uh, a bit of experimentation. And so every year I set a goal for myself. Uh, I set a kind of objective for the work that I'm doing in that year. Uh, and then I see what works, what doesn't work. Now is about that time, December. I usually start to slow down a bit and decide, well, what did I do uh, this year that was worthwhile? What did I do that was not worthwhile? Um, but the goal for this year on the policy front was to abolish uh, the DEI bureaucracies in state universities. Uh, we got it done in Florida, Texas, uh, and Iowa. I think we'll see some other states starting to adopt that policy. Um, we did this great reform effort at New College, and a lot of my reporting and media work is, has been in service to that effort. Where's the tipping point on DEI? Is this thing going to be dead in a year? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think in public universities in red states, uh, it will be uh, dead or dying in, in many places. So, um, you know, once you get Florida and Texas to do something, it gives permission to all those smaller red states to do the same. Uh, you see a copycat effect as it goes down the chain by state size and state influence. Um, the risk is gone. The, the model is there. Legislators uh, want to get a win that is safe. That's the kind of sweet spot for them. Uh, but look, uh, DEI more broadly uh, is entrenched. It's institutionalized. It's very strong. It's not going anywhere in blue states, uh, in public universities, uh, and then in private corporations. I think we're seeing maybe something of an inflection point. Many companies are starting to shed those jobs, starting to turn away from uh, the more kind of left-wing racialist DEI programs. Um, but that fight is still uh, is still uncertain uh, at the current moment. I think there are two models in a lot of people's heads right now. On the one hand, you got folks who say, well, ultimately, we can't hang together. We're just going to kind of go into two corners of the same big room and do uh, you know, what it is that we think is best, the left and the right. Uh, the other model is, no, it's going to be battle royale. Uh, two can enter, only one can leave. Which one do you think is right? 
I think there's probably a, a bit of both operating on two different levels. Uh, at the state level, it's going to be states deciding their own way. I think that for the most part, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the states were homogenizing as a matter of policy. Blue states, red states were uh, you know, within the same uh, range or within the same part of that spectrum. We're seeing them polarize on policy uh, uh, to a dramatic degree um, on the institutions that matter for people. K through 12 education is polarizing. Uh, public universities are polarizing. Of course, economic policies that have been more polarized in the past continue to polarize into the future. Um, so that is good, I think, uh, especially for red states that are deciding, hey, wait a minute, we can't just be pulled by the gravity of left-wing cultural policies. We have to set our own clear boundaries, our own clear direction. Um, but at the federal level, it is still a winner-take-all system. That is how it works. And so there'll be much more uh, contentious fighting. And so um, it, in my own work, I, I, I try to put wins on the board every year. That's what motivates me. That's what gets me uh, excited. That's what uh, uh, satisfies uh, my desires. So um, this year, I've spent almost all of the time focusing on state-level policy, running up wins in Florida, running up wins in Texas, running up wins in Iowa, running up wins in uh, other states. Um, but we'll see next year, 2024, uh, possibly there'll be a change in power at the federal level. Uh, and that's where you have to take that battle royale mindset uh, and go in and fight it out. You think Trump is going to come through here? You think we're going to have the White House in 2024 or, or at least uh, the Republican Party? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a you know, horse race analyst. I try not to think about it. I just decide that those, those questions are, 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 beyond, uh, are, are beyond my capacity to really influence. And so I just wait to see what the status quo is. I wait to see what the situation looks like. And then I devise a, a, a plan or a strategy for achieving my objectives. Um, uh, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, there's, there are too many unknowns. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, and I'll have a piece coming out uh, uh, shortly about this, is um, 2024, uh, there is a, a, a possibility, a potential, I think a rising and meaningful potential for uh, great disorder. Uh, you have uh, left-wing activist factions and militant groups starting to uh, re-emerge in the streets with pro-Hamas demonstrations. If Trump is the nominee, that could re-energize uh, that kind of political movement, uh, even uh, a kind of violent left-wing political movement. On the other side, you have the president, the former President Trump, if he is the nominee, has a meaningful chance of uh, being convicted uh, of, 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 of federal crimes, and that would uh, launch uh, the country into chaos from another vector. So there are so many unknowns. I think it's probably uh, irresponsible to, to, to predict. But um, whatever the situation is, however it resolves, um, I always think there's a way to win. And so I never invest much of my hopes in individual elections. You know, you win, you lose. doesn't really matter uh, over the long term. Um, I just try to figure out what the situation is and how I can uh, successfully navigate it. Well, then let's talk for a minute about that social unrest. Uh, you did tweet, I think it was yesterday, uh, suggesting that people prepare for another riot season in 2024. How do we prepare? Well, I mean, this is an, another important part of it. So uh, exactly the, the, the dynamic we've been discussing, state level GOP governors uh, can take action right now to prevent, to prevent a redux of 2020 kind of George Floyd uh, summer of rioting. Uh, and, and look, I think the basic, the basic takeaway from 2020 is pretty simple. 
it yielded immediate political results for the Democrat Democratic candidate Joe Biden. Um, people forget, but uh, you know, I was I visited D.C. to to go to the White House um, in at the very end of October, very beginning of November in 2020, um, and D.C. was boarded up. Uh, shopkeepers were uh, boarding up their windows. There were barricades around all the important buildings. There were uh, huge contingents of law enforcement because the left had made the explicit and implicit threat. If Trump wins, we riot. Uh, we will put American cities into chaos. We will uh, we will we will destroy um, uh, you know the, the the quality of of, of living in, in in urban centers uh, in protest of a Trump victory. I, I think it had a marginal but marginal but maybe a decisive impact on how people voted the left ratcheted up tensions to such a great degree i'm convinced intuitively at least that many voters decided to vote uh, for biden or not to vote for trump simply to uh, reduce the level of stress uh simply to say let's opt out let's just kind of hit the button and and put a pause put joe biden in as a placeholder uh, reduce the tensions um and so th that, that logic may work again, uh, depending on the inciting incident, uh, one of which may arise or may not arise. Uh, but GOP governors can take uh, steps to, to, to prevent that, to, to kind of undercut those movements and networks that are you know, activated in times of, uh, uh, in, in, in times of heightened uh, uh, political conflict. Uh, and then, of course, the federal government uh, seems to be uh, relatively less interested um, uh, in, in, in pursuing that kind of uh, disruptive uh, activity or monitoring activity of, of violent factions on the left. Um, so either way, conservatives should have a contingency plan uh, f for how to handle this, both at the administrative level, the law enforcement level, but perhaps more importantly, given a national election at stake, uh, as far as communications and PR. Um, they cannot be caught flat-footed um, should that uh, possibility arise. Uh, you spent a lot of time in your book, America's Cultural Revolution, talking about how really what was going on was an intellectual revolution, a sort of uh, dictatorship of the intellectuals uh, coming out of academia and spreading out through the rest of, of society, bringing us to where we are today. Uh, you got to spend some time thinking about, you know, what makes these folks tick, uh, what the agenda, what the approach is uh, coming from the other side. Um, yes, it's possible to do another uh, uh, summer of riots or, uh, you know, election season of riots. Uh, there's another road, though, isn't there, which is uh, why not just lock down the Internet? If you can sort of monitor everything that everyone's doing all the time, you know, maybe you can uh, you can just pre-crime everyone uh, before uh, before the unrest starts. Uh, that seems like that's uh, definitely part of the agenda in the mix there. Arguably, of course, you could have both. You could sort of pre-arrest everyone who you think is your political enemy and then send your political allies out into the streets to rage. Uh, how do you see the balance of that working out? And, and what can we do about the, uh, the, the technological consolidation? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Those are both dynamics at play. I, I don't think that they're uh, mutually exclusive by any means. In fact, I think they're mutually reinforcing. Uh, so uh, if you look at the great uh, justifications for uh, censorship online, um, you know, it, 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 I, I think COVID was, uh, was number one. And COVID is, of course, um, the context uh, from which uh, the BLM uh, riots emerged. Um, and uh, I think that was the, 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 the trial run for using like, what we can call it, let me offline disorder uh, for online censorship. Uh, I, I think those are really the ratcheting in the same direction. Um, and then, of, of course, the more ideological, on the more ideological side, 
Um, I think gender was another kind of main focus of censorship. Um, you know, so you have race, gender, uh, medicine, social control, and COVID. Um, those are the, the, the three topics. It, it could be any number of topics. I think that it is an opportunistic uh, strategy, um, but certainly the prerequisite for an actual uh, justification or rationalization of censorship as well as its implementation, um, you know, it, it always comes from some chaos, some disorder, some great conflict. Uh, and so the more chaos, disorder, and conflict that moves through the body politic in a, in a physical way, in a real way, in an offline way, let's say, um, you, you, you see that used as a justification for controlling uh, discourse online. In addition to the standard, uh, the kind of standard you know, political correctness that's been um, more or less the same since like, you could say the 90s, um, those things will always be off limits, you know, crime statistics or, or, or whatnot. Uh, but I think that the innovation happening there, uh, kind of malign innovation, um, is on any issue that creates stress, that creates unease, that creates disorder. We've saw that recently in Canada. We saw that we've seen that recently, even more recently in Ireland. Um, uh, street uh, disorder uh, justifies censorship. And so I think for the right, and, and, and perhaps this is related, I think for the right, uh, kind of public demonstrations are uh, too high risk. Uh, they often, uh, you know, th th there's very little upside and there's an enormous downside. Um, and so my counsel to, to, to people in, on the right, to conservatives is, uh, if you want to uh, protest, if you want to voice your concerns in a public forum, make sure you're doing it in a way that is unimpeachable as far as your conduct, your speech, uh, your affect, your dress, uh, and do it within the, the, the constraints or within the structures of legitimate democratic uh, kind of above board function like school boards. Having you know, moms and dads come and you know, wearing their work clothes, protesting at school board meetings is an effective means of protest for the right. Um, any kind of other uh, street-based protest, uh, I think it's got all downside. I, I think it's a mistake. I think it should be avoided uh, at all costs. Uh, you talk a lot about how uh, so much of what's going on under the cover of whether it's ESG or DEI, you know, pick your alphabet, your three-letter combination, uh, is really just an anti-whiteness campaign. And I think, you know, there's a lot to that. Uh, one of the things that I'm tracking, though, especially with regard to the Internet, is uh, it's really a, a language of anti-hate. And hate kind of becomes this, you know, this this category uh, that uh, that all the anti-whiteness ultimately serves. You know, it's it's very convenient how you can use uh, anti-hate as a justification to go after anyone, you know, regardless of uh, of whether they have three heads or what race they are. Um, and that seems to be the uh, the attack vector that they're using in order to consolidate all of that online control, really effectively nationalize the internet and put it, you know, make it an in-house operation of of, uh, of woke apparatchiks. Um, do you think that uh, that the, the anti-whiteness campaign is, is something that's going to remain dominant? Or do you think that what we're looking at here is uh, the, the, the category of like evil is being turned into this category of hate? And so it's really going to be fair game on political opponents, you know, regardless of uh, which identity boxes they check. You know, we've, we've seen them go after, uh, you know, whether it's the Proud Boys or other organizations uh, where it's, you know, it's, it's not your sort of corn fed uh, white American male who's in the crosshairs. It's, uh, it's a member of someone, you know, from a little bit more vibrant and diverse background who happens to be uh, identified as, you know, a, somehow a white nationalist, even though they're not even white. 
<laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah. Well, a, a number of things there. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly what the left excels at, what they really have elevated into a kind of uh, genius, is using uh, euphemisms that have, let's say, like a sign in linguistic terms, a sign, hate. Uh, you know, very powerful word, but also a kind of very uh, abstract and ill-defined word. Um, and then what they take is that single sign, the word hate, H-A-T-E. And then the uh, signified, so the, the, the meaning of that sign is bifurcated depending on uh, what we could maybe even just call a friend-enemy distinction in, in those terms. And so the, the, the meaning of that word has two totally different and almost uh, opposing meanings depending on who is the speaker and who is the receiver of that word. And then it's justified, uh, it's used to justify and obscure a selective enforcement against uh, uh, hate. And so uh, on, on any line, whether it's uh, race, gender, class, the great trio, um, what, what I've seen is that there is a kind of cycling process on the left uh, over the course of, let's say, a generational cohort maybe, uh, maybe slower sometimes, faster at other times, where it cycles. The main <clears throat> vector or the main axis of attack is on class, is then on race, is then on gender. In the last cycle, I think you could say that it, 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 following the Great Recession, it was class, it was uh, Occupy Wall Street, it was the 99%, that was it. That kind of cycled out uh, as the economy grew, as those people were exposed as being uh, kind of nutcases. Then it was race, starting at the end of the Obama term, accelerating into the Trump term. Then when that really devolved into defund the police in 2020 and, and, and Black Lives Matter, uh, kind of shattered uh, itself as a movement that receded. And then it was coming on gender uh, the last few years uh, with the trans movement. And so there is a, a cycling <clears throat> underneath the process of a general euphemistic frame where you can enforce, uh, let's say, anti-hate uh, censorship or anti-hate uh, legislation in a ruthlessly selective manner uh, while always maintaining that kind of neutral, gauzy uh, rubric above it. Thank you, Professor. That was a, a very well-compressed lecture there. I want to talk about the, the Logos Fellowship in a minute here, but uh, before we get there, um, you've spearheaded lots of, uh, of, of anti-DEI, really anti-woke legislation. Uh, do you think that we need anti-Borg legislation in this country, whether at the state or the federal level, to make sure that the internet doesn't uh, become this thing that sort of eats us all uh, with whatever kind of hate term they want to use to, uh, to get us there? That, I mean, that's a great question, and, and, and maybe so I can answer that uh, in a way that is, that, is, uh, that is productive. I mean, what would that look like? And, and perhaps you can be a bit more specific in, in, in what, you, what you might see as a proposal. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the way I like to think about these things is uh, Americans have uh, historically been a very competent and confident people when it comes to their relationship with their technology, really a nation of tinkerers, uh, people who can roll up their sleeves, you know, we're going to slide under the under the car, poke around in there, figure out what's not working. Uh, you know, there's that that uh, iconic scene in, uh, I think, Apollo 13, the film where the guys have to dump all the spare parts out on the table and figure out how they're going to prevent the, the craft from hurtling off into the void of space. Um, you know, some of that can be 
be uh, overly dramatized or romanticized or whatever, but I think the, the fact remains that for a long time, almost from the beginning, you know, Americans were very comfortable around their technology. They didn't feel alienated from it. They didn't feel inferior to it. They didn't feel confused or threatened by it. They felt like they had uh, the, the goods uh, spiritually and just sort of in manual competence uh, to just keep things running, um, to keep that relationship balanced and to make sure that they used the tools that were at their disposal, one, to, uh, to, to, to improve their, their living conditions, uh, but also to protect the important things, protect their way of life, protect their, their humanity, protect their form of government. You know, we got a Second Amendment right there. A gun is a tool. Uh, and so now the question is, well, what happened? You know, why are so many Americans sort of reduced to this very uh, servile and and uh, uh, even even to the point of mental illness kind of weak relationship with their technology, uh, where they feel dependent upon it, isolated by it, uh, at the mercy of of these you know people you don't know the names, can't vote them in, can't vote them out. They seem to be in control of everything. Uh, you know, what can just one person do? Well, you know, I think what, what the direction we need to go in is to say, look, you know, First Amendment, freedom of uh, Freedom of speech, it's, it doesn't really have teeth if you don't have free association. You look at the Second Amendment, right to bear arms, what is that? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's ensuring that, that people are able to uh, utilize uh, the, the fundamental defensive technologies or tools that are available uh, just generally throughout society uh, to pr protect and defend themselves and, and those they love and care about. Uh, how does that apply in a world like today where digital technology is, is dominant? Well, it seems to me that points in the direction of you know, uh, ensuring constitutionally uh, that ordinary American people have the uh, the right, the protected right, to use and access fundamental digital technologies, whether that's high-powered GPUs or Bitcoin, things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, certainly in general, I, I I think that is great. I support that, and and I think your characterization of the American relationship to, to technology is spot on. I've I've spent a lot of time recently um, reading the founders, reading about the founders, and. You have you know great inventors like Ben Franklin, but even Thomas Jefferson, uh, if I read it correctly, invented the swivel chair. I'm sitting in a swivel chair right now, and we could thank Jefferson for that. Um, but <clears throat> more importantly, what I think that we get from the founders that might be applicable to the situation is that when when they were talking about liberty, it really meant freedom from domination, uh, freedom from domination by great powers. Uh, it meant the ability to carve out your own homestead, your own uh, your own small farm, your own cottage industry, your own life, um, to, 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 to use the great blessings that we have as a country um, in the way within within you know certain moral constraints, political constraints, of course, uh, uh, in a way that you see fit. And so they would take unjust domination and 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 offer you a kind of rights based protection against it. I think that that is, the situation that you're describing with uh, technology, not with startups. I think startups should be given utmost latitude uh, to build products, but to entrenched and monopolistic players, a Microsoft, a Google, um, they have an enormous power over the individual American. Uh, it strikes me as Ameri that it strikes me that Americans, let's say for social media censorship, for example, have no recourse to this, uh, and and the founders also uh, believe that a man's reputation. Uh, was part of his basic collection of rights. He has a right to his reputation, or at the bare, bare minimum, to defend his reputation. I think that the cancellation of individuals, wiping them from the internet, wiping them from the banking system, is a system of domination that should be submitted to democratic deliberation. And especially in the case of social media, <clears throat> the media can destroy your reputation uh, and then erase you from the internet, meaning that you have no ability to defend your reputation, that strikes me as wrong. It strikes me as justifiable to intervene 
uh, through legislation. Uh, given what the founders had said about it, given their basic ideas of liberty and reputation, and, and so look, I, I think that um, I, I think that this is a question that be, should be submitted to public deliberation, and I think that the right politically has to get beyond uh, the old posture of simply doing service for corporations, serving as the the, the party of corporate interests. And while I you know believe in a free market, I believe in entrepreneurship, I believe in innovation. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, to a large extent, corporate interests are aligned with our national interests, with our, with our interests as citizens. There are certain domains where I think that uh, the citizen must be protected against the domination of some of these organized and large interests. Well, amen to that. Let's talk about the fellowship. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the Manhattan Institute Logos Fellowship. Uh, it's pretty new. Uh, you were joking the other day that it started out as a, as a tweet or what was once known as a tweet, and now it really exists. Uh, a school for activists, you know, how do you make sure that these activists actually do things, that do things that are constructive? Uh, the, you know, most, most people on the right, they hear the word activist, they kind of shudder. Just think about those people out in the streets waving the signs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's a very specific type of activist, but I would say that uh, the basic concept uh, uh, is... You know, I, I think I've I've done some some good work, effective work that has led to results, legislation in uh, almost two dozen states, an executive order changing the national debate on issues like uh, critical race theory, most prominently. Uh, also working on some of the gender ideology in schools, getting uh, DEI abolished in a number of states, uh, turning that into a political concept or debate. And so the last few years, I've learned uh, a, a lot. Really, three years, I've learned a lot about how to do this. And the idea is that. I can continue to do these campaigns, CRT, gender, DEI. I could just do another one next year. Um, but what if instead of doing that, um, we trained a new cohort of people that have the same kind of maybe capacity or promise uh, and give them the resources, the guidance, the, the connections, the kind of lift up uh, so they can do so as part of a, a cohort of people, as part of a group of people. And that expands uh, you know, cohort after cohort or maybe year after year. Um, so they can take some of these uh, kind of new media uh, warfare tactics, uh, kind of culture warfare tactics, uh, and be successful on a wider range of issues. Uh, and we have applications streaming in. I think that many of them are very promising. But but you know how can you be? Uh, uh, how can we uh, uh, kind of offer assurances that it'll be successful? I think I mean, you can never offer assurances uh, to to a total extent, but to a, to a limited extent. I think that the right has to have two things in mind with activism. One is you need a concrete result or objective that you're seeking that can be boiled down into a slogan. This year, my slogan was abolish DEI. And then everything else filtered into that very simple slogan that was outcome-oriented, that suggested a, a desired result. Uh, be very clear about that. And then the second thing is that you have to have a desire to put wins on the table. Um, I mean, a lot of people on the right, unfortunately, uh, uh, are very engaged in intellectual work, uh, but very disengaged from translating that intellectual work into any tangible result. Um, I think that there's a place for you know, knowledge for knowledge's sake, uh, uh, but uh, for, for those of us who are in think tank world, policy world, media world, uh, I, I think that we need to have the, the attitude and, and then the skills uh, to actually deliver wins. And, um, and, then, and then one kind of heuristic that I always kind of oriented my own work towards, and, and perhaps it's useful for others to think about is, what is that ceremony? What is that moment? What is that souvenir that you want to keep at the end of your culture war fight? Uh, for me, uh, I've become a pen collector. 
you know, and, and what that means is that when I, you know, have uh, inspired a, a presidential order or legislation in Florida or legislation in another state, uh, the governor or the president will sign the, the bottom of the piece of paper. Uh, and I try to, you know, collect those pens and then put them on my wall as, as celebrations or bill text, that kind of thing. Um, those are uh, trivialities in some ways. They're, 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 they're curios or, or, or souvenirs. Um, but the idea is that there is a moment where you win. Uh, and what does that moment look like? And, and, and how can you get there? How can you experience that? Uh, and then how can you create a kind of coherent life narrative around it? Uh, and, and certainly at least a, a kind of working narrative around it. Well, I'm a pen collector myself. Every time I go to a, a different hotel or check into the studio, I, I cop a free pen. So uh, we are not too far apart. You are uh, and, and every time you are <laughs> racking up another win. Yeah, that's right. Uh, seriously, though, um, talking about uh, graduating these activists, so to speak, I almost want to say it's like the Teal Fellowship. But you actually think kids should still go to college, at least certain colleges, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look. You're going to have like eccentric geniuses that drop out of, uh, you know, Harvard and Stanford and University of Washington and found tech companies. Um, but that is not translatable uh, to a mass scale. That is a very idiosyncratic and a very individual uh, decision, you know. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and so for the, for the rest of the, the folks um, and, and, and for a political movement broadly, um, there, there's this meme on the right that you shouldn't go to college and that colleges are, are, are evil and we should destroy them rather than uh, assimilate to them. I, I think it's such a mark of inferiority. Uh, I think it is a mark of self-sabotage. Uh, I think that it is completely wrongheaded. Um, universities uh, at their best are uh, the crowning achievement of our civilization. We've had, kind of, let's say, modern universities in the West uh, beginning in, in Italy and France and then in England and then the United States uh, for a thousand years. Uh, and we should not abandon them simply because some, um, some, uh, you know, some idiots have hijacked humanities departments. Uh, we should reconquer them. We should retake them. We should reform them. Uh, we should improve them. But even from a pragmatic point of view, you cannot have a functioning political movement of high school graduates. Uh, it may sound harsh. It may sound elitist, but it's 100% true. Um, we need people on the right that have uh, 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 impressive uh, educational credentials uh, at the undergraduate level, at the, uh, the kind of uh, PhD level that could go into academia, uh, at the JD level so they can go into uh, law so that they become uh, clerks and then judges, uh, and then even at the, let's say, the MD level to push back against gender ideology, for example. And so uh, cr these credentials matter. They don't matter for everyone. You know, uh, a Bill Gates or a Mark Zuckerberg or a you know uh, whoever else uh, can drop out of college and be successful. Uh, I know folks uh, that have done so. Um, the trades are a great way to make money, to have a family, uh, to to be an entrepreneur, to have a, be a small proprietor. Uh, I think there's no denigrating that path. I think it's very important. Uh, but politics is a game of of elites. Um, it always has been in the United States. It always will be. And so we have to have elites uh, that at least can notch those credentials. Uh, before they join our political movement. Well, as a PhD myself, I think I'm probably congenitally unable to disagree with you about that. But, you know, it, there is this sort of phenomenon, maybe you've seen it yourself, where it's almost become embarrassing to mention the fact that you have one of these higher degrees, one of these advanced degrees. It's like, oh, you pompous ass, who, what are you trying to prove? You know, and, and I, I, if, if, if the universities are so good and if higher education is so wonderful and if it's such a capstone achievement, 
in Western civilization, then how did it go so wrong? Um, I'm not sure that I buy the idea that it's just like, well, there was this moment in the 60s and kind of we got some bad eggs in there and then there was sort of, sort of like their bad ideas caught on. Isn't there something more serious going on here? Something about the spiritual fiber of, uh, of the country, of the people, where suddenly uh, academia turns into, uh, you know, a, a woke madrasa instead of what it used to be, where, you know, you got crosses on the walls in the classrooms, you got, you got plaques on all the universities, a chapel on every campus. That's, you know, how, how much of that transformation is something that can just be chalked up to, uh, to some, some intellectual trends in the 70s. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the intellectual trends in the 70s are, are, are the proximate cause, but not the deepest cause. Um, I wrote a book about the proximate cause, so I think it's actually really important. I think that's where you get the, the kind of textural change. Uh, that's where you get the ideological uh, expression of the change. Um, uh, the deeper forces, uh, as you suggested, I think secularization is, is a huge part of that. Uh, universities were, uh, uh, in the West, Christian, uh, the, the highest discipline uh, until... Uh, uh, until the, the kind of modern period was theology. Uh, there was kind of an avenue uh, towards understanding God, towards, uh, uh, towards, towards revealing different facets of God's creation. That was the idea. Um, I think there's a displacement of that telos that has now been substituted with a kind of bureaucratic uh, arrangement. So you have the corporatization or bureaucratization of the university. Um, so, you know, DEI has, has, has replaced, you know, the pursuit of truth, let's say. Um, that's part of it. And an, another big part of it that is under discussed is something that, uh, you know, is maybe um, uh, some, uh, uncomfortable to say. It, it, sounds, it sounds awful to a certain extent, but too many people are going to university. Uh, that is a fact. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I believe in 1970, about 10% of Americans had a college degree. We're now approaching about 40% of Americans with a college degree. And because of how age demographic works, age demographics work, that, that means that even a higher percentage of younger people are pursuing a college degree. I, I do not think that you can have a meaningful uh, kind of liberal arts education for uh, a, rather a meaningful uh, and rigorous university education for 50% of your population. Uh, I don't think that that's how it works. I think that the, the, the real reason for the collapse in standards of the university is that it's become uh, disproportionate to its function in society. I think that we should actually see um, uh, fewer people uh, attending universities. I think that the university, uh, kind of the, the four-year university should actually contract in size to be a kind of elite education tailored towards uh, the most capable, let's say 10%, at most 15, 20%. And then the other functions of the university should be broken up into uh, technical education, to uh, uh, kind of apprenticeship programs, uh, to trade programs. So the, the kind of great, uh, you know, the, the great practical arts should be broken out uh, away from the university. The university should be consolidated back into something that is for the, let's say, the top, the, the talented 10th, uh, to borrow a phrase uh, from 100 years ago, of American society uh, that, that is geared towards people of, of the greatest uh, intellectual talent. I think just by doing that, just by restricting it uh, to, to a kind of uh, what, what you know, people may sneeringly say a cognitive elite, uh, doing it based on the, the, the kind of their talents and virtues rather than their politics or their DEI categorizations, I think many of the problems in universities would be solved. And many of the worst people that you see in universities, people that are these ideological uh, uh, mediocrities, uh, would, would, would also uh, not have entry into such a system uh, because they'd be the people that are in the kind of, you know, 
the, 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 low, the, the lowest quintile, let's say, uh, of aptitude for intellectual work. Well, I think there's absolutely no, no question that when it comes to academia, something's got to give. You know, I think there's just going to be an automatic filter. Prices are just going up so much. They're charging more and more. Uh, you, you know as well as anyone, the administrative uh, uh, element in, uh, on campus is, is growing faster than anything else, even faster than inflation and, and the cost of education. Uh, and that's just going to tap people out, in some cases just because they can't afford it, in others because, you know, it's, the, it's that gut check moment. I mean, I remember this, you know, growing up, you probably do too. There was a real wave among uh, parents at the time where, you know, it was a, a panic, a scramble to get your child into college and, and beyond that to get them into, quote unquote, the best college you could get them into. Now, you know, that's obviously coming from the right place. And you know, yeah, it was a different economy. And, you know, there was there was still this this. Uh, I think ultimately naive belief that uh, the more technology increased and the, and the more of a uh, productive economy we had, uh, the more jobs and the more flourishing there, there would automatically be and the more, more pie there would be for everyone. Uh, I think we're starting to see that you know, tech doesn't really care about our feelings in that respect and, and the situation is a lot, a lot more complicated. Uh, but you, know, you, you wrote your book, uh, I think, uh, very, very um, wisely nailing the, the intellectual class for succumbing to uh, some of the bad ideas that are now uh, taking hold hold in our, in our institutions um, isn't part of the problem here, isn't what went wrong with academia, uh, that Americans really just started to almost worship intelligence. That they thought, wow, you know, if the, the smarter my child is, the better off they'll be. The more intelligent someone is, the more they can be trusted. Uh, smarts is going to save us. Smarts is going to give us power. Smarts is going to make the world a perfect place. Yeah, I, I think it's the worship of intelligence and credentials. Uh, and so I, I, I see <clears throat> this, this happening a lot where I've talked with a, a number of uh, very wealthy people in you know, very exclusive neighborhoods of, of you know, the, the best uh, cities, let's say, calling me to say, hey, I have my kid at this you know, $60,000 a year private school, but they're uh, you know, doing CRT, they're doing DEI, they're doing the, kind of promoting the, the, the kind of trans interventions. What do I do? And it says, well, why is your child in that school anyway? Um, well, this is the, you've got to get here so then you can get into the Ivies and they feed you here and they do this. And so I think a lot of it is just uh, uh, e even among our, our elite colleagues and, and, and friends and, 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 and um, other people in these circles, a lot of it is snapping that addiction uh, to, to prestige that is uh, forcing them to compromise their values and principles. I think that's a big part of it. Um, uh, I, I think that the worship of pure intelligence is also a big part of it. Even on the right, there's a kind of fetishization of IQ uh, that I see in certain quarters. Um, and look, I get it. Being intelligent in a highly technological society is an enormous advantage. Uh, it's always been a, an enormous advantage. But I think, again, uh, if you look at the work of the founders, uh, if you look at Jefferson, if you look at Adams, what they said to me, the things that I've been rereading uh, still resonate. They talked about uh, what they do not want is an artificial aristocracy. They actually use that kind of beautiful and very modern sounding phrase. Uh, I think that the artificial aristocracy in our time is the kind of uh, you know, prep school, uh, master the DEI uh, uh, kind of vocabulary, uh, enter into the Ivies and go work at McKinsey uh, running their uh, diversity initiatives. That's like the, the, the kind of prototypical path. Uh, but but it, for them, it was an aristocracy. They didn't want the artificial aristocracy. They wanted an artificial aristocracy. They wanted a rather a, a true aristocracy of talent and virtues. And so talent, I think we can now uh, maybe summarize as intelligence, let's say. It's, it's loosely equivalent in the modern period. But we've forgotten about the virtues. 
Uh, and so uh, intelligence that is not tethered to a set of virtues uh, can be very evil, uh, can accomplish a lot of uh, uh, evil in the world. And so we need to revive not only a, a kind of appreciation or a cultivation of intelligence. We shouldn't uh, be anti-intelligence either. I mean, that, 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 that's not great, uh, not a great path. But we should make sure that we ha have not just evaporated the virtue component that, it, that is the other side of it. And so I, I think even in my own life, I know people who are intelligent and lack virtues. I think they're some of the, the, the people who are doing the most harm uh, to our country. And, and I see many people in my daily life uh, who are maybe not as intelligent but are very virtuous. Uh, and I think these are the people who right now for the time being are holding, uh, ho holding our society up and making it functional. Uh, and so I, I'd like to see uh, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of reuniting or, or, or kind of coming together of, of those uh, two components um, so that we can recompose a, a social elite um, that will be uh, actually working towards the benefit of the country. Well, I think that's pretty well said. You know, when it comes to virtue, none of us is without sin. But I, th I think we have gotten ourselves into this sort of cultural predicament where people say, well, you know, the virtues can't really simulate intelligence. But if you're smart enough, your intelligence can simulate any virtue. It can simulate anything. You can pretend to be anything good if you're just smart enough. Uh, that seems to me a big trap. And I think to a degree, you know, when you, when you look at what the, the woke uh, movement is all about, um, I think that they are trying to respond to a situation where it looks like smarts have taken over, uh, automation, you know, artificial uh, intelligence, artificial aristocracy, the kind of uh, rule of, uh, of deterministic math, deterministic materialism uh, seems like it's taken over and their response is, well, wait a minute, you know, this isn't justice. Only we, uh, the, the spiritually pure, can create real justice. So the answer is to just put us, the spiritually, spiritually pure ones, in charge of all the institutions. Um, you know, you and I are going to say like, no, that's actually a really bad idea. But I, I do think that they, they do have a correct insight, which is if there's no spiritual renaissance here, we are going to fall prey to a kind of servile relationship with that artificial or that automated kind of intelligence. So they've got yeah, their oh, sort of oh, spiritual oh. renaissance that they're working on. So like, where's ours? What, what kind of spiritual renaissance do we need? I think that is 100% right, and, and, and the reason why, why the intelligence cannot uh, simulate or serve as a substitution for virtue is because they come from different sources. Uh, intelligence is a product of the mind, a product of reason. Uh, the virtues are a product of habit and the product of affect or emotion. They're, 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 they, come, they stem from different sources. They require different methods of cultivation. They're, they're, they may or may not be uh, correlated in any way. I don't know. That'd be some interesting... Uh, research to do. Um, in, in my experience, they're, they're not strongly correlated always, uh, but that's probably a, a, a kind of socially changeable dynamic. But what I think we have and what you're describing is a very interesting situation, something that, you know, my, my wife worked in, in big tech for, for many years, and so I got a chance to meet uh, many people in my political work. I know many people in, in, in kind of uh, the, the elite tech world. What I see is you have a, a kind of uh, let's say uh, atheistic uh, or uh, or kind of apolitical uh, engineering type, computer science types, computer engineering types, um, who are just fascinated with the, the the world of technology that develop all these great technologies. Um, they don't imbue it with a an ideology because they're unideological. 
Um, but then what you have is you have people who are, you, know, so you have very high IQ, uh, very high uh, kind of spatial capacity, uh, engineering types that make the technology. And then you have essentially the, the, the telos of the technology, the constraints of the technology, the moral application of the technology is decided by social workers. You know, social workers, of course, um, uh, uh, if you look at the, the kind of GRE scores, uh, having like the lowest of any, of any, of any kind. Um, but they have a very advanced ideology. Uh, it's DEI ideology, uh, let's say, it, just to summarize it in a very concise way. Uh, and so what you have is like AI. You have the, some of the most brilliant technical minds creating these uh, uh, really powerful machines that I think could be uh, tremendously beneficial uh, for our country, for, for, uh, for human beings more genuinely. genuinely. But they're regulated by uh, uh, people who have uh, the, the kind of most uh, kind of just awful um, uh, uh, this kind of moral scolding, uh, but, but totally untethered from any real moral tradition, kind of the morality of social workers is imposed and now controls the technology. So you can say, make me a poem uh, uh, praising Donald Trump. And it will say, I can't because Donald Trump is a hate figure. Um, it's like, I, 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 it, what I'm shocked by is that first of all, these companies feel a necessity to do so. I'm shocked by secondarily that the engineers who, who, who uh, create the technology would allow themselves to be neutered by the DEI officer. Um, and then I'm also uh, kind of shocked by, as a third component, that the public would not demand something better, would not demand technology uh, that is oriented uh, towards maybe uh, kind of uh, pure technical capacity, as the engineers would like, or oriented towards something higher than this kind of politically correct uh, 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 scolding and, and kind of school marm uh, smothering uh, of our great technological innovations. Yeah, I was shook by that uh, inability to write a nice poem about Donald Trump too. Major uh, 2001 Space Odyssey vibes. I can't do that, Dave. Uh, it's it's fascinating to watch this in real time, and we'll see if if, uh, if Elon can uh, can offer up something else a little bit different. Although I wonder, you know, if uh, the the more we look for AI to save us, the worse off we're going to be. I do want to talk about uh, New College yeah. in Florida. Uh, Ron DeSantis has been out on the campaign trail a lot. Wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Uh, he still did a lot of good stuff in Florida. Still time left on the clock down there. Uh, you you guys have been busy down there. A uh, new board comes in, takes the college, uh, turns it into something very different from what it once was. Uh, what are the lessons that you've gotten this year uh, working on that project? Uh, and how do you think that those uh, lessons can be applied and taken up uh, outside of Florida and other red states? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, all, all credit to Governor DeSantis. I mean, he is an incredible uh, leader. He's an incredible uh, executive. He is uh, really brilliant at the st both the strategic and the tactical level. Um, I, I've been just uh, blown away in all of my conversations and all the time I've spent with him observing how he works, observing how he thinks and plans and executes. Um, but the, the plan at New College was pretty simple. Appoint a new board of, kind of activists, strong, conservative intellectuals and, and, other, and, 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 and lawyers and other figures. Um, replace the leadership of this small, uh, very left-wing college in Sarasota, Florida. Bring on a new administration, uh, new employees new faculty members, and revive it as a classical liberal arts institution uh, that is a home for conservative scholars, a home for uh, conservative uh, intellectuals, a home for uh, conservative families, a place where they can send their kids and to know that they're going to get a, a balanced uh, education informed by the classical uh, traditions of 
the West, and then of course of American civilization more specifically. Um, and to say that uh, in a conservative state, uh, there is no law of nature that all universities have to be rabidly left-wing. Uh, that is a status quo that is unacceptable, and we're going to actually take uh, concrete steps to change it. And I think that the biggest lesson for conservatives and for other states is, um, you know, conservatives have been complaining about the capture of the universities uh, since, uh, you know, uh, in a prominent way, since the closing of the American mind, since the 80s, since the 90s. Uh, it's now been, uh, you know, multiple generations of conservatives complaining and losing ground on this fight. Um, uh, it's time to reverse that. Uh, I, I just don't accept that we can complain about something for 40 years and take no action to solve the problem. And so Governor DeSantis deserves enormous credit. He is the only political figure in the United States to say, I have an actionable plan to reverse the ideological capture of higher education. We're going to start with a small experiment at New College of Florida, the smallest university in the public uh, system in Florida. And then we're going to go from there. We're going to work up the chain. We're going to try other strategies, other tactics. Uh, and so this is the kind of uh, policy that we need to have. And uh, conservative uh, intellectuals, uh, you know, that, that, that is the realm that both the, the kind of circle that both you and I travel in. I, I, I think we have to have a real gut check. We have to have a real um, uh, honest moment with ourselves. Are we doing literature or are we doing politics? That is to say, um, are we writing about it in a pure intellectual capacity? Or are we going to be writing about it um, and, and then uh, moving towards uh, the mode of, of statesmanship, of governance, of practical politics? I think both are valuable, uh, but I think that it's important to understand exactly what you are doing as an individual, what we are doing uh, as bro more broadly as a movement. Uh, and I hope that this uh, small gambit at New College, which I think is uh, going very well, um, could inspire similar models, inspire similar actions uh, elsewhere in the country. Well, I think it's going to have that effect. Uh, things are just coming to a head. People want alternatives. And uh, like you said, you know, this is, this is not rocket science. It just takes some people who understand uh, what the stakes are, understand how to, how to actually make moves in the practical real world level uh, instead of inside of their head. Uh, and I think that, that kind of, uh, those kinds of successes are, are contagious. Um, you, uh, you know, you're a Renaissance guy and, uh, that gives a, an interviewer an embarrassment of riches. So I thank you for that. We got about 10 minutes left. Um, I'm going to zig, uh, to just one more spot on the Chris Rufo map and that's documentary film. Uh, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, it's obviously something you love to do. Uh, you just had a, a little something out on, um, I, I think on what's going on with uh, new college and the successes down there. Uh, to my mind, um, you're right. There is too much intellectualism. There's too much uh, of, a, of an inclination to just say, hey, if we just read the right books, like everything's going to be okay, you guys. Um, obviously, reading good books is great and everything, uh, but there's a lot being left on the table. And some of what's being left on the table there isn't just uh, uh, concrete political action, although that's definitely true, but also artistic work. There's a huge world out there of real artistry, real uh, sort of public art that people can watch and learn from and enjoy and connect with and see uh, uh, truth about the human condition. 
uh, shared in a way that's powerful and isn't just the kind of script that you get out of Disney nowadays. I mean, they're, I think they lost 50 billion this year. You know, you've had a much better year than, than uh, the Walt Disney Company or Bob Iger. Uh, and you know, it's, it's gotten so bad that uh, a guy like Elon, Elon Musk can sort of go to, uh, ver almost go to the Magic Kingdom and uh, give them a one finger salute. So um, you know, this to me is, is clear evidence. Uh, that there is a real opportunity, yes, for people on the right, not just people on the right, but you know, folks in that space to tell stories, to present the human condition in a way that really resonates and, and brings some vitality back to that area. Um, as a filmmaker, uh, how do you handicap that space? Do you agree that there's a lot of room? And uh, what would you advise people who want to move in that direction themselves? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of room. I think there's an enormous opportunity. But I, but, but I also think that it's, a, it, it's very difficult um, it's a very difficult challenge, and I think one of the big there, there are kind of two problems on on the right, let's say, as far as culture. Um, one is uh, struck the structure of culture, and the other is the kind of content or aesthetics of the culture. Um, structurally, uh, you know, the 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 kind of like the, let's say Disney is representative of a mass commercial enterprise that has uh, production, marketing, and distribution built into it at a global scale. Um, nothing on our side, I mean, it's like nothing on our side can even compare. The closest is News Corp, you know, Fox News, HarperCollins, et cetera, um, which I think is a, a kind of our, one of our key assets, uh, very important. Um, but if you look at more, because that's, that's political news, it's a little bit different. But if you look at kind of more uh, artistic creation, um, there is no, you know, Sundance Film Festival. There is no network of art grant, grant makers in the arts. There are no uh, conferences of the arts. So when I was a pure documentary filmmaker um, doing the film festival circuit, selling films to PBS, putting a film out to Netflix, um, you kind of learn the circuit and you work the circuit, you get money from the circuit, you show your films at the circuit, you, you have your kind of relationships built at the circuit. Uh, I mean, it just doesn't exist on the right. There's just nothing. Um, however, um, you know, on the opposite side, there is a kind of direct uh, to audience possibility that wasn't the case 10 years ago when I started in documentary, 15 years ago, actually, when I started in documentary. And so uh, conservatives, I, I've been putting these little short documentaries right on Twitter, um, and they're getting millions of views. They're getting comments from Elon Musk. They're driving news coverage. They're getting, uh, you know, uh, kind of making the rounds in uh, clips and secondary media. So there's a, there's a kind of opportunity there. The second problem, though, is, is an aesthetic problem. Uh, you can't really make art that is uh, uh, explicitly ideological. Um, so a lot of conservative, you know, quote unquote, art is like, let's raise $25 million and make, an Ayn, you know, and make a, a fiction, you know, film adaptation of an Ayn Rand novel and like stuff the ideology right into the audience's mouth. Um, Nobody wants that. Those films are going to lose money. Those films are going to be awful. Um, it's just, it, it, they're never done very well. Um, uh, it's a huge problem. And, and the, the second thing is, is that uh, I think that just the kind of uh, design, production, aesthetic, uh, kind of capacity on the right is, 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 is still very low. Um, you know, you see this in like, like say, say Christian uh, media, um, you, you know, uh, you see like Christian films and they're just from aesthetic per, per, per point of view, they're just awful. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're aesthetically uh, unsophisticated, unappealing. Um, they get an audience, they make money actually, they're commercially viable, um, but they're not going to influence the culture uh, in the same way that we would like. This is a problem on the right, uh, a wholesale. So 
you're, you're starting, you know, from a very uh, low level. I'm maybe, let's say, not optimistic about it. I think that um, if you're in an, a kind of investor or you're a philanthropist looking to put money, I think what you want to do uh, aesthetically and, and artistically on the right is invest uh, in low cost methods of uh, media production. Uh, I, I think that uh, that is, pro you know, print, uh, literary journals, uh, book publishing, podcasts, uh, videos, documentaries. Um, I think that that's probably the best investment right now. Uh, and, and from those low cost kind of artistic means, uh, then you can start to build the structures around them and, and then get uh, involved in a bit more kind of high stakes, uh, high production value. Uh, high, high aesthetic uh, efforts. I think that all sounds about right. I, I, I guess what I would add to that is, you know, if, if you spend enough time in Hollywood, you start to just kind of absorb some of these factoids by, by osmosis. And so one of the greatest sources of, of revenue, one of the best returns on investment in, uh, in the Hollywood film space <laughs> is just like schlocky horror movies. You know, you can do like a paranormal activity, like one through eight yeah. or whatever, whatever sequel they're on. And, uh, you know, you got to put up a little money up front, but uh, those things really make their money back. And uh, rather than... Yeah, they're like the, the Bloomhouse uh, Bloom stuff. And then another another dirty secret from Hollywood is that uh, you know family films make a ton of money, but they don't get Academy Awards. Yeah. Uh, so you know, and, and and they don't you know they don't they're not Marvel movies or whatever. Um, so yeah, there there's like kind of lucrative genre films that can be made. Um, I, I I think one bright spot is you know Daily Wire is you kind of stepping into this territory. I I don't know that it will be successful. I don't know you know there's there's no guarantee of that but i think it's admirable that they're that they're putting in that they're that they're trying that they're experimenting i don't know the financial model behind it but um i i think that's another bright spot so uh, people are experimenting and i think that's good and i think that um you know we, we could certainly use more creative experimentation uh rather than having another um you know hilton hotel ballroom event uh, with a thousand, you know, uh, petit bourgeois baby boomers, uh, you know, celebrating, uh, you know, some some speech uh, from some uh, old news personality, which is a uh, uh, kind of what, what I've. And I'm sure you've sat through many of those, as I have, uh, which I just feel like uh, is something that has to be wound down entirely. Well, I think you're right about that. Uh, I, I'm probably a little more optimistic than you are on the, on the creative front. Uh, I know your dance card's pretty full, uh, but if you're watching this and you care about this too, you, whether it's on the, the creative side or the investment side, talk to me, drop me a message. Uh, I know some folks care about these things too, and I think there's a real uh, gateway that people can ride through uh, in these crazy times. Uh, Chris Rufo, uh, one final question. Um, next year, what can we expect from you? Yeah, next year we're running this uh, Logos Fellowship uh, with Manhattan Institute. We're taking these 10... Uh, culture work projects. We're going to uh, incubate them, accelerate them. Uh, hopefully, they'll be delivering some results. Um, I'm also uh, uh, working on a new book for HarperCollins, uh, uh, looking at activism, practical politics, uh, kind of a, a response to the left's long march to the institutions. What would that look like? How can we actually uh, uh, win in a more broad scale? Um, we'll be doing some, some reporting, some other media, uh, so I, I think that the, the great theme, every year is a theme, CRT, uh, gender ideology, DEI, and next year is activism per se. Uh, so, so, so activism as a principle and as a practice, that's what I'm going to be thinking about. That's what I'm going to be writing about. That's what I'm going to be doing. Natural aristocrat Chris Rufo, you got it down to a science. Thank you for coming and joining us, and uh, we will be keeping tabs. You can be sure of that. Thank you. 
All right, that is literally all the time we've got today. So until next time around, I am James Paulus. This is Zero Hour, and may God have mercy on us all. Bye.